Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Live from GPB News, this is Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Sam Olins ran two successful statewide campaigns for attorney general and chose never to confront publicly the anti-Semitic slurs directed at him by some voters. He's now speaking out about what he experienced for the first time. And he says he realizes it's never appropriate to stand silent in the face of bigotry. Olins joins us to tell his story. Then we'll look at the raging controversy over what many are calling President Trump's racist remarks about the so-called squad of four Democratic Congresswomen of color. Two Georgians were key players in the House vote to condemn Trump's remarks. Sam Olins, the AJC's Greg Bluestein, Emory University's Dr. Andre Gillespie, and political strategist Theron Johnson, join me after the news. 
Live from the GPB Newsroom, good afternoon. I'm Drew Dawson. Just ahead, it is Political Rewind with Bill Nygut, but first in GPB News, more than two dozen pilot whales beached themselves on St. Simon's Island yesterday. A Facebook video shows hundreds of beachgoers trying to push the disoriented whales back to the sea. According to the Department of Natural Resources, most of the animals were returned to the ocean. However, three of the whales did not survive. Biologists say mass strandings are more common for pilot whales because they tend to live and travel in social groups. Atlanta's jail task force held its first meeting on Tuesday. The 25-member group will help determine the future of the city's detention center and how the space will be repurposed. Sharon Turner is a member of the task force and spent time in the jail. She says her goal includes... ACDC into a center of wellness, freedom, and equity for people like myself that needed resources, housing, and mental health services, not incarceration. Population at the jail has continued to decline since the city ended cash bail and stopped accepting immigration and customs enforcement detainees. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms testifying in Washington, D.C. today about climate change. The mayor is appearing before a panel of Senate Democrats. Bottoms will reportedly tell lawmakers about Atlanta's climate change plans, including a commitment to transition municipal operations to 100% clean energy by 2035. And in sports, the Braves and the Brewers play game three of their series this afternoon. The first pitch is in five minutes. For more Georgia news, go to gpbnews.org. This Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. LLS is taking a precision medicine approach to treating acute myeloid leukemia, which claims the lives of nearly 11,000 Americans each year. Learn more at LLS.org. I'm glad to have all of you with us today for Political Rewind. Thanks for joining us for our Wednesday show. If you're listening in real time, uh, remember you can watch us right now by going to Facebook Live, the GPB news page, and you'll see us there. And you can join the community of people who comment on the show every day. We don't follow you in real time, or at least I can't, but it's always interesting to go back and see what you've had to say about a given show. I want to uh, once again say that we're going to be on the road again. On August 12th, we're going to Augusta to do the show in front of a live audience. We'll be at the Jesse Norman School for the Arts, 7 o'clock, Monday night, August 12th. If you'd like to join us, and we sure would love to have you there, just go to uh, politicalrewind.org. You'll find a link to a page where you can sign up for a free ticket. So come on out. We'd like to see you there. Greg Bluestein is with us. It's Wednesday. He's political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, I came back from vacation, and on Monday was able to thank you for your work uh, filling in for me for a couple of shows while I was gone. But now I get to do it in person. Yeah. I thought— I was watching you from a pub in Dublin, and I thought so you—I thought you did a great job. I Thank was really you. pleased to watch what I you did. I had a blast, but this is a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting right next to you, Dr. Andra Gillespie. She's a political science professor from Emory University, and. Dr. Gillespie, you're not getting much of a vacation. You are working through the summer at Emory, aren't you? That's always the case. <laughs> right. Such is my life. Uh, Theron Johnson, a uh, Democratic strategist. Uh, he is the founder and principal of Paramount 
consulting, doing a lot of government affairs work. You, Jeremiah, only your associate was on the show the other day, and I asked him if you guys had taken on any uh, 2020 candidates yet. He said, not yet. Not yet, but we're in the game, and you know we're open. So. All right, you were very modest a minute ago when when our next panelist, Sam Olins, and I'll introduce him more formally in a second, uh, congratulated you on a recognition, a national recognition. Please don't be modest. Tell us what the recognition is and what you're going to be doing. Well, that's why we love Sam. You know, he's uh, <laughs> such a, a generous uh, human being, but. No, um, me and about 10 others have been identified uh, with a national think tank group that's going to come together to basically put forth the policy and sort of plan uh, for whoever the nominee, he or she may be on the Democratic side, to go and face President Trump. So uh, to be one of 10 of sort of been identified as sort of the best strategists in the country wow. to come together. That's pretty, pretty That's, big. Congratulations. And, of course, I, in introducing you, I usually like to point out that you, in fact, um, oversaw uh, President Obama's reelection campaign here in the southeast. So you have experience dealing at the highest levels of presidential politics. Well, you know, a lot of us did not do as much as we could have in 2016. So we definitely want to be available in 2020. All right. Uh, congratulations on that. We look forward to hearing more about it as the months go by. And Sam Oldens is here. Sam, of course, former attorney general, uh, elected uh, for two terms. He also it was uh, the celebrate. I think celebrated is the right word. When you were Cobb County chairman, you were considered just one of the finest uh, county chairmen in the state. Uh, former president of Kennesaw State University and now a partner at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Hi, Sam. Pleasure to be here, sir. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Um, so we kind of have a theme going today, I think it's safe to say, uh, starting with a column that Sam published, was published by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on Sunday, that deals with bigotry that he faced. We're going to talk to you in a minute about just what that means. And it fits into the, kind of the larger theme that um, people are grappling with here in Georgia and across the country right now about bigotry and hate speech, which we're seeing now play out and in Washington on the national level in terms of the um, remarks that President Trump has made uh, about uh, the four, the squad, as they're called, four uh, women of uh, minority women in, in, who are freshmen in Congress. We're going to delve into all of that uh, today. But I want to start with your very personal story, if we can, Sam. You wrote a column in which you talk about, and I want you to tell the story, but you talk about in running for attorney generals uh, statewide, the number of times in which you ran into anti-Semitism expressed to you by, by voters out there across the state. And you nevertheless won election both times. Which is the more important point. Which is a very important point. But, but you also say something really crucial in your article. You, you say... You say, luckily, I was blessed at the end of a successful campaign to represent our state. But now, as I look back, I realize that silence is acquiescence. Silence is consent. consent. We are all called to do what we can to stand up to hate. And you didn't talk about it. You wanted to keep that quiet throughout it. T tell us about you tell your story. Well, I'm not sure what my story is, but I, but I think, you know, we all are in environments where people say inappropriate things. We seldom take them on when we hear those comments. In elected life or on the campaign trail, you're looking at the big picture rather than that individual day, so you move on. 
But I think we're at a place um, in time where we need to start speaking up, where we no longer should let uh, silence uh, be that consent. Um, there's no political party that has the market on bigotry and intolerance. It's an individual issue. And I just think it's important, you know, as I mentioned to uh, Greg before we started, I had this idea to do an op-ed, and then I read the news about the uh, gay person in Decatur that was shot down and killed because he was gay. You know, there comes a point where not only do you need to demand civility in life, but you've got to acknowledge we could do far better society, and we must. In the column, you paint a picture of a town hall meeting uh, right before an election where someone stands up and says something to the effect of, I can't vote you, get, can't not vote for you because um, you're not a Christian. And she was greeted with warm applause. And you sat there and you said, you're, you're proud of who you are. And you didn't dwell, you didn't go further on that issue. Now, looking back, what do you wish you had said there? So it was actually in the middle um, of a town hall in Tifton. And uh, it was a loud applause. It wasn't okay. just a little applause. Yeah. Uh, it made for a really long car ride, right, from Tifton back to Cobb County. Uh, now, I did say, look, I'm, I'm proud to be Jewish. So I didn't just, mm -hmm. you know. But, I mean, I had other times. I mean, I, I had a, uh, uh, a meeting in, in Henry County uh, where one of my opponents uh, was telling folks to whisper, you can't support Sam. He doesn't love Jesus. And, you know, clearly I witnessed the whispering. I caught what was occurring. Uh, I think it's important that you actually respond. I think it's important that you say this isn't what America stands for, uh, that people of all faiths are protected under our Constitution. And I think you frankly need to put people in their place. Andrew, Theron? Well, one, I thought your op-ed was really powerful. Well, thank you. Um, it was, you know, it, and, and, and it hurt me to see the ways that other people had hurt you. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. I think, you know, one of the places where I'll disagree with you is I don't think that this is just an individual issue. I think that there's systemic issues. And I think that some people are having a hard time with that. I think that's part of the problem. I think some of this is people are just hardwired into their camps and they're going to support who they want to support. But the things that I've heard people say in defense of the president's tweets, well, it couldn't have been racist. He doesn't mention a color in that. You know, it's not racist. He didn't mention people by name, you know, sort of, you know, it goes along the lines of, you know, he didn't use the N-word and he didn't talk about people having to, like, you know, sit on, you know, separate lunch counters and other kinds of things. Um, and so I think that betrays this overly simplistic understanding of what race is that's actually very convenient. Um, and while I will argue that, you know, racism and bigotry are not the province of one group and certainly not one political party. I think the way the Democrats and the Republicans have confronted those issues have been really different. And I think that there actually are really important things that the Republicans can learn from Democrats in terms of how they've addressed issues. And so because there is this reluctance to identify or to recognize the ways that group identity work um, in politics amongst Republicans, I think they're having a hard time addressing that particular issue. So in some ways, it's the privilege that often comes along with whiteness of not having to address race that's actually making it easy for people to try to say that certain things aren't being racist when they in fact are being racist. Uh, that's a problem. Well, we don't do group politics or we don't play identity politics. Yeah, everybody's playing identity politics. Republicans have been playing it for years too. They just haven't acknowledged it 
And if we just hide behind this patina of colorblindness, then we can all act like nothing's happening. And unfortunately, President Trump has just sort of put it out there sort of in full display, and other people are still trying to play that game. Theron, I see you nodding vigorously. No, that was well done. Um, I agree with everything what Dr. Gillespie just said. But I also just want to personally thank Sam for you know, stepping up and, and really being courageous and saying something that by many is going to be viewed as unpopular. But, you know, the, the overarching theme throughout your, your article to me, Sam, was that, you know, if bigotry is unchallenged, it's it's allowed to grow. And listen, I'll, I'll, I'll even go a step further. You know, uh, on the Democratic side, we watched your first race for attorney general and listen, in, in Blue knows this. I mean, a lot of circulation in the political community is, will the Republicans elect a Jewish, you know, attorney general? And then, Sam, I know you heard this, and, and since we're just all friends, we're opening up here, you know, you were being considered as a potential gubernatorial candidate. And what was so racist and just unbelievable to me when I would sort of talk in these circles, the only thing that, you know, people would quietly say to, to Andrea's point is, OK, will Republicans elect its first, you know, Jewish governor? And and then, you know, but Sam, you handled it with so much um, um, just uh, display of just uh, grace of grace in, 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 in as an American. And so I do think now. When we have a president, which I know we're going to get into later, that has really made this the front and center debate amongst everybody right now. Um, Sam, your your piece is not only timely, it was so needed. And it gave me a sense of calm with all this rage that I have built up inside of me of what's going on in our country right now. Sam, I think... Um there are there are people who uh, um, have said they're not quite sure they're saying it right now. I, I am looking at our Facebook feed right now. They wonder why you decided you didn't want to confront this when you were running. And I'm just curious. I think that's an interesting question. Um, so but, so I was very cognizant of exactly what Darren said. <laughs> I mean, look, it, it, it wasn't the unusual event yeah. that I would run into anti-Semitism. And the whole idea was once you're in the position, you have you have a larger pulpit, mm -hmm. you have greater ability to try and correct the wrong. Uh, if you want to solely attack the problem and um, not have that greater voice thereafter, who's the winner in the outcome? In you know in the long yeah. term. So it it was clearly uh, my decision. You know, my wife was clearly familiar with it. Uh, I didn't discuss it with my children, uh, but it was clearly our decision that, you know, you run the campaign, you take the hits when they come, um, and that you hope that you then have uh, the ability to make the point thereafter. You know, I'm frankly just glad that when I mentioned the idea to, to Denton's, they said write it. You know, yeah. they didn't have any hesitation. They said do it. Um, you, know, you know, Greg, I think that we as journalists, when we watched Sam's career arc from the time he was at the chair of the Cobb County Commission, we, we all knew, we understood that he was, a, he was Jewish. Uh, it didn't get a lot of attention uh, publicly. And I think we speculated as journalists at what kind of impact it might have in his thinking about whether – you could start off by running for governor despite the success you'd had as a county chairman. I was going to ask you that because your column focuses mostly on your AG runs, um, and it, it mentions a few incidences, but not – I mean, the one that comes to my mind was the flyers. At, it, I think it was a middle Georgia rally that were being handed out 
basically calling you the other. Uh, and we wrote a column about that in the AJC. Jim Galloway did at the time. Um, what what role did, did all that play into running for even higher office? Because you were among the, the, the names out there, along with Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle, as a potential gubernatorial candidate. Uh, it, it was made known to me that a lot of the uh, money folks around the state would not view my candidacy with favor for governor. So I, I was aware of that. I'm also aware of the fact that, like African Americans, 75-plus percentage of Jews vote Democrat. So if you're having trouble raising money at that point from Republicans due to your religion, and if the majority of Jewish folk are Democrat, uh, it's hard to raise 10-plus million dollars. So uh, let me— Expand this just a little bit, and, and Andra, I'm, start with you on this. But but everybody, please weigh in. Um, I think back to President Obama's first campaign, and of course the racist uh, uh, ramps that uh, he faced during it. And Barack Obama too chose not to make race a frontal issue. He did not respond to those kinds of. Uh, he finally made the big speech that we all remember. But there were many people who said, why isn't Obama being expressing more outrage at what he's facing? But in fact, I, well, let me just ask you instead of giving you my opinion. Was he in fact d- recognizing, as, as Sam Olins does, that to play into the tropes uh, just makes things worse? It, it, are there similarities between what Sam wrote about what he went through with his campaigning and Barack Obama, who chose not to talk about race all the time in reaction to racist comments? So uh, what you're talking about is President Obama's decision to use a deracialized campaign strategy. Yes, and exactly. So Thank it's you. It's this idea of um, <laughs> not necessarily running with civil rights issues at the forefront of your campaign platform and then also trying to run to be counter-stereotypical to what tropes are sort of exist about your particular group. And, you know, this is a strategy that was first proposed in the 1970s by Charles Hamilton. Um, and it was something that, you know, we saw people like Tom Bradley use, but it really starts to come to the fore in the late 80s with people like Doug Wilder and David Dinkins and stuff. And it's always been acknowledge that deracialization is an effective strategy if you're running in a place that has a large non-black um, population mm-hmm. or for non-minority population, depending on what group you're coming from. And so if you're going to run for a statewide office, if you're going to run for a national office in the United States, you have to have a significant um, level of support from whites in order to be able to win an office. And this is even true for Democrats. And so you have to figure out a way to try to come up with a transcendent campaign theme to bring people together. That was what President Obama was focused focused on. So there are a number of critiques about deracialization. So one is if you don't talk about race, but your opponents talk about race, you are left flat-footed if you don't actually end up responding to that. And it didn't affect President Obama. It almost did. Like if he had not addressed the Jeremiah Wright issue, his campaign would have imploded. Yeah. There are other bigger examples of not necessarily dealing with those issues. Harvey Gantt in North Carolina when he's running against um, uh, Jesse Helms for the U.S. Senate, right? We, you know, we're not going to talk about race. Jesse Helms was running racist ads. Harold Ford demurring to talk about race in 2006 when he runs for the Senate and the RNC is running ads, you know, that have a scantily clad white woman in there going, Harold, call me, right? Sort of, you know, raising these issues of interracial sex up. So we know that if you don't talk about it when other people are bringing it up, it could hamstring you. But we also know that there, you know, is a market for voters to want to have black candidates 
who, you know, sort of represent diversity, but then aren't necessarily going to address these important structural inequalities that still exist in American society. And so there are a lot of critics who say that what's the point of having deracialized candidates if we're having black or, you know, Latino elected officials, but they're not going to actually address the inequalities that affect these communities. Theron, here you were uh, running an Obama campaign in the South in the reelection year, and um, you obviously had to uh, think about how race played in both to to your advantage among African-American voters in the South, but also concerns about the racist uh, 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 overtones that could hurt him among white voters, yes? Well, the one thing that we uh, pride ourselves on in 2012, you know, we all read about and we've heard that President Obama had a no drama policy. And that was, you know, that was instilled in us every single day. But I want to go back to 2008 to to really sort of bring up a point that a lot of us have forgotten. You know, when when President Obama made that historic speech in 2004, um, you know, it was a recent uh, Netflix documentary that I just saw, The Black Godfather, about Clarence Avon. And what people got to remember is that he came onto the scene and gave this very American, you know, we can sort of live together and, and under, you know, one country. This um, was the keynote. Keynote in 2004. Yeah, Democratic Convention. So when he came in 2008, to me, Bill, the, the turning point for President Barack Obama, well, then U.S. Senate uh, candidate Barack Obama, who later became president, was when he came out and really opposed the Iraq war. And, and, and you got to remember, this is at a time where Hillary Clinton, when she was a U.S. senator, she had voted for it. For it. And so to, 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 uh, to Dr. Gillespie's point, we all as African-Americans like, OK, this is a mixed, you know, uh, gentleman who's running for president. He was raised by his white grandmother, has a white mother, um, African father. But he did a unique thing about embracing his you know, African-American upbringing, he identified himself as black, unlike, you know, many people criticize Tiger Woods for not doing it more of it. He did it early on, but don't do it more of it. But then also what he did at the Jeremiah Wright is that because he had sort of tapped into the emotion of the Democratic base, which was at that time were for universal health care, was for hope and change, but they also were adamantly opposed to the Iraq war. He had to run that campaign. But what he did with Jeremiah Wright, even if you really go back and look at that speech, he condemned the behavior and the in the words that the pastor used, but he did it in a way where he didn't make people who followed this pastor in the religion of what he was preaching, you know, feel like ashamed to be a part of that church. Yeah. And it was it was one of the best speeches that I've ever said. So look now, you know, there are some African Americans who didn't really see the real Barack Obama into the second term. And that's when he came with my brother's keepers and and other things that really has right. changed the world forever. Um. So, Greg, I, I want to pick up uh, on something that Sam said, and I don't give everybody a chance at this. I, I just realized as I'm looking around at all of us in this studio, we're kind of all representative. We re- all represent the other. Yeah. There are three of us who are Jewish, two African-Americans. And um, Sam said a really interesting thing. He said, you know, you talked about in the most important point of your op-ed being you've got to confront these things. Greg, I... If you don't mind being personal for a minute, because I'm glad to be, uh, have you experienced people who have had either made comments about you as a Jew or who have said things about Jewish people in your presence that has really uh, 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 hurt you? Both, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure most Jewish people. We don't. We obviously we can. We we don't get it nearly as much as uh, African Americans or others who who. Or more visibly, the quote unquote other, but certainly, um, and you know, one thing that comes up to mind was being at a at a rally, at a political rally, 
in 16 and you know people I didn't know it was out of the state it was North Carolina and and I start to interview someone and there's immediately a Jewish joke uh, that wasn't it wasn't funny and and I just walked away and I, you know, I probably should have spoken out and said something too but I had a deadline yeah to Sam you're not to do. I I've always Sam I want to get your take on this when somebody starts to tell a Jewish joke or a black joke whatever in my presence. I've learned that I've got to say something, that I've got to say, please. and, and, and the, the, the point is not to get angry, not to be belligerent, to say, excuse me, I don't want to hear a joke about Jews or about black people. You know what I mean? You're, that's what you're talking about. Well, I don't want to hear a joke about lawyers, and I don't want to hear a joke about, <laughs> you know, they're all demeaning. Yeah. And the worth of the person is greater than the person wanting to give the joke. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everybody, I think we can all share stories. And I think one of the things that's interesting, and so one of the things, you know, when I was thinking about this, I'll I'll confess here, nobody's ever called me the N-word directly to my face. And I think some people would say then that means that, well, well, racism has abated. So clearly you're not a victim, you know, of, of racism. It's like, yeah, no, I could tell you some other stories. So I know what it's like to be in a restaurant and like all the white people who come in after you get seated and you don't. Um, or to be told more than once, you are so articulate. (laughs) I remember on some student evaluations when I was a graduate student, um, somebody wrote in the evaluation, she speaks English really well. And I confronted it the next week. And so it was either racist towards immigrant graduate students who didn't speak English really well, or it was saying something about, oh, for a black girl, you can talk well. And it was like, so I went to Yale for graduate school. So it was like, you know, yeah. Like, you know, I could, I'm from Virginia. I can speak English, right? And they wouldn't have let me into Yale if I couldn't. Um, and so, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, there are these other types of things. And I think the thing that's frustrating watching this debate is that there appear to be members of Congress that I would have to argue with to say that, like, those aren't racist experiences. And I understand the idea of you if you spent all day looking for every racial slate like your day would be consumed and you would get nothing done and so yeah people pick their battles sometimes but i think the things that you're talking about are big and what i hope other republicans kind of take from your example is the moral fortitude to stand up and point this out like you know it pains me that there are only four republicans and a democrat who, you know, signed on to the condemnation of, of, of President Trump's comments, this demurring to say that some of this stuff is racist because people are afraid of primary challenges. You know, I'm looking for the Republican who is willing to stand up and say I'm willing to lose an election to, you know, to speak truth to power and to say that this is patently unacceptable. Let me, Theron, I want to give you a chance. We've got to get it to a break, but so you get the last word for this segment. No, and, and I think the, the thing here also from, from an African-American standpoint, like Dr. Gillespie, I don't think I've ever been called the N-word um, in my face because that would not go well. <laughs> um, but, you know, Bill, you know, on this show and other shows that I've done, I mean, if you just read the comments, I mean, people will say it on social media. I mean, I've been called the N-word and then don't let me have an opinion where I actually may push back uh, on a TV show on radio onto a white male. And then it really escalates because, you know, we, we face different things. But being an African-American male in politics who runs your own business, the minute you appear to be angry or even to be a little forceful, then you're deemed as the angry black man, which is kind of code by some white folks is basically being, you know, referred to as the N-word, and then you can't really trust him for all the images that the media likes to play up about black men. But I do think what is really interesting to me is that, again, 
this president, I think, is reframing the debate because we have now stopped talking about all the deplorable conditions that we have seen in these detainment centers, these camps, people, babies not being able to live in conditions, people not being able to take showers. I mean, we're not even talking about that anymore because he has totally reframed the debate in the country. I'm glad you uh, took us to that point because that's what we're going to talk about when we come back from the break. I do want to make a couple of quick comments reacting to you. I I am, I, you you know, there may be code here and there. I don't know. I I know for a fact, and I know Tom Faust and Robert Jimison, who monitor all of our social media, would probably agree with me in a minute. I've certainly never seen anybody who has uh, made a comment about you that appears. Oh to no, have, it's and, not an accusation, accusation. And yeah. when Andre Gillespie is on, we get lit up with people saying, "Oh, we love the show when Andre's on too." Oh yeah. <laughs> but there are other places. Of course, and there are places I don't read oh, of comments specifically just, for this reason. I just wanted to. <laughs> speak to the listeners uh, uh, of, of uh, Political Rewind where we're doing that. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way and come back, and we are going to take on this larger question of what's happening this week in the world of President Trump. You're listening to Political Rewind. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, Randy Rainbow. He writes and performs satirical songs about President Trump set to the melodies of show tunes. His videos go viral on YouTube. Songs like this, borrowing a melody from The Wizard of Oz. You would probably start crying, then rehash all the lying and rhetoric you've preached. Join us. All the Dems would be smirking Jim McCoskey. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind with Sam Olins, Andrew Gillespie, Theron Johnson, and Greg Bluestein. Before we uh, move on, th- uh, Sam Olins, thank you for uh, sharing with us a very personal story that you did in the AJC and then were willing to share here. And I think the important thing is what you said. You faced anti-Semitism. You won both of your statewide races. That's the most important part. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk for a while about President Trump. Uh, I want to preface it real quickly with this. Most of you who listen to the show regularly know that it, we don't spend a great deal of time trying to recreate what you hear day in and day out on MSNBC, CNN, Fox, whatever. We try to stay away from that echo chamber and try to deal with things that are going on in the state or national issues that has some state uh, uh, context to them. But this feels bigger somehow. What's happening, Greg, this last week since Sunday with President Trump's tweets about the so-called squad, uh, the four women of color who are freshmen in Congress, this feels like something that we would be irresponsible not to spend some time on. Yeah, that is bigger, and it directly plays into Georgia politics because it will resonate through 2020 elections. You've already seen um, just about every Democratic candidate running in those two competitive House seats in, in, in the 7th and, of course, Lucy McBath in the 6th condemn those uh, those tweets, those series of tweets. Um, and also uh, lawmakers and officials um, from county level on up talk about 
what it was like for them to be called at some point or other to, to be told to go back to where they came from, to talk about ra- those racist tropes, to talk about um, their personal experiences. Uh, we've, we've sent a team of reporters out to talk to, to voters in Gwinnett County, the, one of the most diverse counties in Georgia, to talk about um, how that felt from the ground level. Of, of, of a county that has experienced a, a, a dramatic demographic change in the last 20 years. Um, so you're seeing it, even though it's a national debate and it's the headline of the New York Times and CNN and everywhere else, it's also playing out at a very local level. What does it go back where you came from mean, Andra? So oftentimes it's telling people make America white again. I mean, I don't want to sort of resurrect the trope that, uh, yeah. that that Nancy Pelosi has used, but it's this idea that you don't belong here. So if you go back to where you came from, then those who remain kind of get to sort of maintain control of their identity and maintain control of the country. So, you know, whether it's African-Americans being told to go back to Africa um, or, you know, AOC being told to go back to Puerto Rico, which is America, like so, um, you know, or sort of the insinuation that Rashida Tlaib should go to Palestine or or that Ilhan Omar should go back to Somalia. You know, it was it was not just this idea of like, you don't belong here. You don't count, even though these are Americans, you know, who are duly elected to Congress. It's also this idea of when President Trump sort of added to it they should go back and fix up their messed up homeland. So again, it's saying this idea that the places that they come from are dysfunctional and so basically take your dysfunctionality because you disagree with me back to wherever it is that you came from. I I, got to say, uh, Sam, I thought that uh, Bregg's colleague, Jim Galloway, of course, a partner of ours on this show, in in the lead to his column today, in one sentence summed up uh, what the the question of why don't you go back to where you came from means? He says it isn't really a question. It's a declaration of ownership and an accusation of trespassing wrapped into a single phrase. Powerful. Well, Jim's a great guy and it has a long history doing great reporting uh, for our state. Um, there is no defense to the comments, and uh, Andra, uh, you talked about the vote in Congress. But once again, my mentor uh, was the one who uh, immediately came forward and uh, spoke out, and that means Senator Isaacson. And he did not uh, shy away from the fact that the president's comments were grossly inappropriate. Yeah. Well, I still want people to say, and I appreciate grossly inappropriate. Um, I think especially in contrast to Senator Perdue, who's like, they're not racist, and it's like, I think we need to have a continued dialogue about what what that's about. But I also want people to not just say that they're grossly inappropriate, but to point out that they're grossly inappropriate because it's beyond racial dog whistling. It's stuff that, like, you know, lots of people can hear. And so there still seems to be this reluctance among Republicans to, I think, in the mind of some people, call a spade a spade. And so it's inappropriate, not just because it it's undignified, which it totally is, but also this idea that you're going to start telling American citizens to go back to wherever it is you think that they came from because you don't like the fact that they criticized you. Like, there, there were racial undertones um, to that. And then continually calling out on Americanness. And, you know, and I think the other thing that's probably really galling about this is that there are still disagreements in the Democratic Party about stuff that the squad does. Um, and to, to paint anybody who came to their defense on this issue as therefore you're defending everything that they've ever done or said, you know, I think, you know, sort of it lacks a certain level of sophistication. And, and President Trump is drawing lines in the sand that I hope nobody would be comfortable with, because basically what you're saying is you're either with me all the time or you're against me all the time. And for a party that values individualism and individual thought, like, I would hope that people would be able to say, you know what, I'm with you on the tax cuts, but I'm against you on this one, and I'll fight you vociferously on it. But, Theron, 
isn't are we playing right into are all all of us talk show hosts and panelists uh democrats in congress and we'll talk in a minute about the vote that the house took last night to condemn his remarks is everybody just playing right into the president's hands here well, I think we are, but we must speak out and we must speak okay. against these racist comments yep. and this bigotry that he has amplified since he has decided to even seek office and become president. The one thing I also want to remind the president and all of us around this table, I mean, we're all immigrants. I mean, last time I checked, uh, the president doesn't have any Native American blood in his system. So at the end of the day, if anyone should be, <laughs> you know, outcrying by telling folks that they could possibly go back to where they come from, it's probably uh, our Native American our brothers and sisters. But the, the thing is, Bill, where you're going with me, which is where I struggle with this, I do think we're playing into his hand because here's the bottom line. The way to... Sh- to, to censor and make sure that the president of the United States of America does not continue to amplify this bigotry and this racism in our country is to defeat him. Well, that's a really interesting and, way. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. And so, so, I'm sorry. So the political part of me says, okay, are we spending too much time talking about a president who the American people already know that he not only tweets this stuff and will say it, but he believes it. I mean, it's, it's in his core. And so I don't think we're going to change anybody's minds of if you don't think the president of the United States is a racist right now, I don't think there's anything that we can do as Democrats to change your mind. Now, if you think he is a racist and you thought he's a racist from day one and he makes these racist comments and fails to apologize, then those people, I think we need to keep continue to galvanize them and stuff. So I do think that the as, as separate as we are as Americans and he continues to separate the country from an electoral standpoint, Democrats have got to figure out a way to try to shut down this this hate and this bigotry and this racist racism that we're seeing spurring from his mouth but we got to figure out a way to refocus the country on the issues that matter the most go ahead Andrew. so you know i've been thinking about this idea about whether or not we're adding flame to the fire by continuing to talk about this i think part of it is is that there needs to be sort of a national discussion a little bit of a national catharsis because it's just disturbing every day when this happens that you have to address it and then there is the how do we ignore the most powerful person in the world and so i'm wondering if there's a middle ground so part of me is like you know what I don't necessarily feel like trying to make appeals to the president and his better angels is actually getting us anywhere. I pray for his redemption and, you know, we'll we'll hopefully he'll get there one day. But he's not going to change anytime soon. I'd like to focus my attention one on Republicans so that they feel emboldened sometimes to cry out that the emperor has no clothes on anymore um, or never did. And sort of so that they feel sort of empowered to be able to say certain things and that there are people who will back them up even at the ballot box when they do take courageous stands. And then I think probably for public information, you know, the idea of asking President Trump questions, giving him opportunities in press conferences, since they don't like to give it, then stop asking him questions, but just report he said this. We all know this is racist or it's not true. I, I, and yeah. then move on from there. I, I think, Sam, first of all, why don't we let you respond well, to what Andre's so, suggesting so that I Republicans don't... need to be empowered. But they're not going to be, are they? Most well, there may, of them. There, there may come that day. But I think if, if I were a Democrat, I'd frankly be spending more energy on having a nominee who can beat the president than trying to change Republican leadership. You know, that the fact of the matter is... Um, the independent vote is certainly up for question. And you've got Nancy Pelosi trying to encourage the House to seek the independent vote 
and then you have others on the campaign stage that are taking positions that are really hard for her to sure. get, let alone maintain that independent vote. So at, at the end of the day, I think the president's success is far less dependent on what he says or tweets and far more dependent on who the nominee is. One, right? of, the, one of the things this reminded us of is the Republican Party, and not that we need a reminder, but is still the party of Trump. There's very little room for never-Trump voices. Uh, we've seen that in Georgia since he was elected in 2016, and we've seen that all over the nation uh, with only four uh, Republicans um, uh, supporting this House resolution. Um, what we also saw, though, you mentioned earlier, Bill, that it's kind of shifted the conversation away from what's happening at the border and those other issues. It's also shifting the conversation away from all those Democratic infighting that was that was the rage in Washington last week with the liberal groups and uh, fighting against the moderates and open warfare on Twitter and in the halls of the Capitol. This provided Democrats with that moment of unity where they can all get behind one topic. Yes, but I wonder, Greg, and then I'd love everybody mm-hmm. else to weigh in. I wonder if what we saw play out last night, and and we're going to do a break and then talk about last night, when Democrats uh, proposed a non-binding resolution to condemn President Trump for what they called racist comments. Here's Nancy Pelosi, who has spent months fighting the Democrats who are insisting that impeachment has to be on the table. She has resisted it because she said, we don't want to fall into that trap. We need to win an election in 2020. And the, one of the reasons I say did, did the Democrats in this case play in right into his hands, last night Nancy Pelosi went full bore into a place where, that she's avoided for months being as uh, by, by calling the president a racist from the floor of the House and then or calling his comments racist and then facing what a speaker hasn't faced in like 40 years. Uh, a, a resolution saying that she uh, had violated House rules. In other words, is she fallen right into the trap of pushing the Democrats uh, to a place where they're going to rally the Republicans uh, uh, to support Trump uh, even more in 2020? I think with this vote, the, the roll call tells the story. That was the most moderate House members also supported it, right? I mean, from argued about, but but also said later that they felt uncomfortable yeah. being put in a position of having to support it to some extent. Yeah. But still supported it. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think that there are a couple of, of things to think about there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Doug Collins going after Nancy Pelosi and Eric Swalwell, you know, I think is something that, you know, we'll, you know, we could talk about. I think there is the larger strategy of yeah. Donald Trump wants to run against AOC. Right. And so she has now become the boogeyman. Right. And so now you're like you got all these sort of like, you know, crazy socialist, radical like folks who have made comments that they shouldn't have made. Um, He's trying to pick who his foil is when, in all honesty, they aren't his foil. These are freshman congresswomen who haven't been in long enough to get anything done. So it's really convenient. But then Democrats have to kind of rise up and say, like, you know, this is a bigger tent and that they stand for something different. So I think that's where he's going. Now, the thing that I thought was actually really interesting. In politic was after the resolution vote ended Al Green starts to issue articles of impeachment and the yeah. substance for impeachment was he's a racist and it's like wow if we can't even agree on what racism is then we certainly can't agree that racism is a high crime or a misdemeanor and so this is purely symbolic and this like that I just thought was 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 really kind of you know crazy and it really shouldn't have happened yeah. yesterday. And, and this is the thing that frustrates me you know and, and, and I want to agree with what Sam said listen at the end of the day I do think 
bill, Speaker Pelosi had to go left on this one because this is a woman who has spent the last probably eight to ten months of holding the party together. Now, let me be let me be straight up. What, what Donald Trump is also doing by attacking these four women of color who are members of Congress, let's not forget that. That's one of the most pristine political jobs in our country, right, that you can have. He's The un-American basically is saying uh, it's got two two sort of tones to it. It's saying, hey, you're not from here, so that makes you un-American. But what he's really also saying, Dr. Gillespie, is that House Democrats, we control the chamber. And all of the things, not all of them, but most of the things that they're complaining about most of the things that they're pushing back on President Trump about, Democrats are going to have to answer how much, how many of those things will be able to get done. Because what's going to happen, no matter who the nominee is, he or she, when you go to the ballot box a year plus from now, is they're making all this chaos, which is needed. We need commotion. We need good trouble, as John Lewis would say. We need to bring to the forefront some of these issues. But if Democrats have not delivered on any of those things, or not all those things that they're complaining about, then voters are going to ask that simple question but, but, when they go to the ballot box. But, Tam, and that, that's, I think, you all are being much more articulate today than I am, and I'm appreciative of that. That's kind of what I wondered. I mean, Pelosi has told her, her caucus, we've got to accomplish things, the things that, yeah. that Theron's talking about. And yet, the president pushed them last night, pushed Pelosi to the left, pushed them into this position of making this the most important issue uh, in Washington. And to that extent, the president kind of wins, even though it's a terrible game he's playing because you can't not speak out uh, if you feel what he's saying is racist. Absolutely. I mean, Aaron's right. I mean, it's by definition, the day's going to come where everyone's going to need to say what they've done the last four years. Uh, And it can't be labels. It can't be name calling. There needs to be substance, especially for independence. And uh, substance is in short supply. Yeah. Let's and, and, and the thing is that one thing that frustrates me the most is that if you look at when Democrats took office, the first thing that Speaker Pelosi put forth was a voting rights bill, right? We're not even talking about that anymore. Right? It's DOA in the Senate. Uh-huh. Right. It's DOA in the Senate. I know it's DOA in the Senate. So, so the thing is, is that, you know, that's a great CNCBC. I give my little selfish, selfish plug where I'm quoted in about the, uh, the Democrat who's challenging um, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, and she's basically saying the reason why Trump's agenda has not been carried out for his loyalist supporters is because of Senator McConnell's inability to lead and to get things done. And so, to to me, again, I agree with Sam. When you go to the voting box, uh, to the ballot box, in you know over a year from now. People are going to be judging on what would Democrats able to do to improve this country versus what this president was able to do. All right. I got to get another break uh, out of the way. Um, Georgians played a big role in the debate last night. We're going to talk about that more after this. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks.
The Trump administration says think about prescription drugs like you think about cars. Since 1958, car companies have been required to post their sticker prices. There's no reason it should be any different for drugs. But does that comparison work? You're not negotiating with the pharmacist for the cost of your drugs. In search of a better drug pricing analogy this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Greg, when the uh, House uh, met to debate last night the non-binding resolution to condemn what they called the racist comments of President Trump, uh, it's not a surprise that one of the people who was the most articulate uh, in terms of uh, making that argument was our own John Lewis. Let's listen. We all come from some other place, and it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American, a Native American. Native American were the only people here when we got here. It's just dead wrong. And we must use everything in the most nonviolent way to say that it is wrong. We're not going back. We're here to stay. Is what the president said racist? What he said and what he continued to say is racist. It is racism. You cannot hide it. The last part of that came from an interview that uh, John Lewis did with uh, uh, MSNBC yesterday with Andrea um, Mitchell. Then, and then I want to bring the panel in, uh, Doug Collins played a huge role, the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, he was able to delay the vote on this for a couple of hours because after Nancy Pelosi made her comments, uh, he got up and demanded that she either he rather politely said, would you like to change the words you used? If not, and she didn't want to. He said "Then I think you're out of order, that you violated the rules of the House. The House set rules are that you cannot talk about the president as a racist. It led to a two hour uh, discussion with the parliamentarian. Let's just listen to how that took place. Every single member of this institution, Democratic and Republican, should join us in condemning the president's racist tweets. To do anything less would be a shocking rejection of our values and a shameful abdication of our oath of office to protect the American people. I urge a unanimous vote and yield back the balance of my I was just going to give the general speaker of the House if she would like to rephrase that comment. I have cleared my remarks to the parliamentarian before I read them. And take it. Can I ask the words be taken down? I make a point of order the gentlewoman's words are unparliamentary and risk ready to be taken down. Greg, after a long, long discussion, the parliamentarian did rule that Nancy Pelosi's words uh, were a violation of House rules. Uh, but the uh, House then, led, of course, by Democrats, uh, rejected a request to have them stricken from the record. It was a very, very dramatic night on Capitol Hill. Yeah, and first time in about 40 years where that procedural maneuver has been used. Um, and, the, and the key word there was when, when Speaker Pelosi said racist tweets. Um, because the congressional rule book considers references to racial or other di- discrimination on the part of the president to be out of to be out of order. Um, when we didn't play that clip, but when Congressman Lewis actually spoke on the floor of the yes. House, he chose his words a little differently. He said, I know racism when I see it. I know racism when I feel it. And at the highest level of government, there is no room for racism. So it's a lot harder to kind of challenge, at least on procedural re- levels, that, that those remarks than it was uh, Nancy Pelosi's remarks. Um, so... 
Sam, this does, it, 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 Greg said it from the very start, all of this is going to march right into the 2020 election cycle, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think similar to what Theron talked about earlier, uh, we've got to get past the labels and we have to get uh, to a positive discussion about the direction of our country and whether we're going to do so uh, enabling civility. I mean, at the moment, you know, we can't have on every news show people yelling at each other, whether it's looking at agendas, whether it's looking at what moves our country forward. You know, we're all old enough to remember where it was considered so wrong to use capital letters in an email. Well, my God, how we'd love for those days to return. Um, We are really running short on time, but this has been an important conversation. And so, uh, Theron, I want to give each of you a chance to make it. Take a a 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute, and just some concluding thoughts. I just want to, you know, again, publicly thank uh, my hero, Congressman John Lewis, for always being that conscience of Congress and speaking up and loud about what's going on in our country. But, you know, the very fact that we're all sitting here, and, and Bill, you said it earlier, we're all, you know, we, we're the other, right? And we're having a civil conversation, uh, even though we may agree or disagree on different policy and different um, sort of areas of politics, we can have a civil conversation. And I just really hope that, to, to Dr. Gillespie's point, Democrats, you know, we're tired of being you know, one of the only groups of people who are speaking out against this president. I would just encourage more and more Republicans who talk about it privately in their homes um, with their family uh, and, and with their, their friends to have the courage to really come out and condemn the rhetoric and the hate speech that we're hearing from this president. Um, I'm going to second that entirely. And I was going to, you know, um, ask Republicans to think about this. But the, the larger thing that I want to think about for both Democrats and Republicans and everybody in between is there are short-term political games and then there is history in the long term. And so I think a lot of people are making a lot of short-term strategies and I'm not sure history is going to smile on any of this. Uh, Greg? Yeah, I mean, I, I go back to what I said at the beginning, which is this, this will, this will, all this will sort of congeal and continue to resonate um, through 2020. We're going to be hearing um, a lot of reminders of this rhetoric uh, in campaign ads, um, in the arguments from Democrats and Republicans. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a 2020, it's going to be an election cycle that will exhaust and, and chest all of us. Sam? We didn't have really time for this today, but there were some interesting comments in the story about uh, Brandon Beach on a radio show guy used to be in Roswell. Uh, I I think it's very clear that this pro-Trump, anti-Trump talk is the flames going to get louder before we ever get to the right place. Um, So as we run out of time, uh, Andrew Gillespie, Theron Johnson, Sam Olins, Greg Bluestein, I thank you for a really meaningful, for me, a really meaningful conversation. I hope listeners agree. And thank you for your candor in all this. I will tell you very quickly, I don't know when I've been so sad about the way government is working. I know we've gone through times in American history when there have been people beaten on the floor of the House of Representatives. I know we've had times where acrimony has grown out of control. Uh, The Civil War certainly is an example of that. But in my lifetime, I think this is as sad as I have ever felt, regardless of partisan leanings about the way things are unfolding in Washington. And I personally hope that, as you have all said, we find a way toward the light and dealing with each other with more respect and dignity. That's it for us today. We are back on Friday with another show. Thank you for listening today. We'll see you all then.